welcome to a non-linear approach to. I'm Daniel. I'm John. And John does not know what Periscope is. I, I know what Periscope is. I know it's an app where you can watch people looking at things on their phone. I, and like it, it's essentially apparently full of people watching their dogs. I thought you just said you didn't know what Periscope was. No, I said I've got this Periscope thing for my phone. All right, I see. Anyway, on Android today. Anyways. See? Home. Time to release dogs from prison. Anyways. And I can watch a man releasing his dogs. Oh. No, it's a woman talking now. All right. Today I've been... <laughs> I have very much been convinced by the futility of having pets today. Again. But that's not what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about user research. How to do user research. And how you can do dirty and quick user research that matters when it's hard to do user research. Because you should always research. Right, is that not right, John? That's very right, yes. Brilliant. But first, we're going to talk about stem cell burgers. Okay, what are stem cell burgers? So, stem cell burgers are burgers that are from lab-manufactured meat. So a uh, famous scientist called Mark Post at Maastricht, he uh, famously created a stem cell burger uh, like last year or something like that, that some chef cooked and ate on stage. It was a big deal. And then it, the price of the burger was $325,000. That's an expensive burger. Yes. So, so it was sort of, an, I guess, unfeasible to serve this in restaurants. Was it any good? Uh, apparently not. Um, but now the price is down to $11. So Wow, that's nearly as cheap as a normal burger. That is probably not quite true. But because it's the price of the meat. Ah, okay. Yes. So... Well, I mean, that's like for some very pricey meat, maybe. Anyways. You could pay that. It's $80 a kilo for the meat now, which makes it closer to like a commercial product. Mm -hmm. Right? If, if it, it's in the realm of things that normal people can buy. So then you have meat, which is uh, completely removed from... Uh, uh, you know, hurting animals and uh, all the bad things that angry vegans are upset about. And, and of course, also, I mean, agriculture is a really high strain on the planet. Uh, it's not a very energy efficient way to produce say, food. So is producing meat in a lab energy efficient, do we know? Um, I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> It'd be interesting to know. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, but it's it's still an interesting idea because you're getting this uh, alternative to traditional uh, meat, and you know mm -hmm. we're eating meat that has pr been produced by you know hunting things and growing pigs and, and stuff like that for a really really long time in human history, yeah. and uh, this sort of slightly science fiction notion is uh, you can grow it. Yeah, right? So that's... I just think it's really noble. Okay, so is this going to be the... the uh, Assuming it gets to the point of being commercial and people buy it, is it going to be the top level? You know, your prime meats will be the lab-grown meats? 
or is it going to be the bottom level whereas your your grow your natural meats will be the premium and these lab grown ones will be the cheap ones that go into your lasagna instead of horse see i think and this is my sort of punter opinion but i think it's going to be eventually going to be the cheap meat it's going to be you know like a curious thing in the beginning where it's served in sort of you know fancy restaurant where it's impossible to get a hold of and very quickly become the cheap stuff mm-hmm. um, because of like anything else which is uh, which is a mass produce like that and has a great potential for just mass consumption uh, yeah you know it becomes a yeah, yeah. And I think that's a good thing, potentially. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I was then thinking what you said about the angry angry vegans, and I imagine it still would be unacceptable for a vegan to eat, given it comes from a stem cell, which is the product of an animal. But vegetarians are generally happy to eat eggs and things like that. So a stem cell is presumably the same as taking an egg. So therefore, does this meat become acceptable for vegetarian? Right, and, and, and where's the split? So are you then... Because like a vegan would not eat an egg, but a vegetarian might. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then is that the split? So then if you're a vegetarian, do you eat meat also? But like... No, because you have to kill the animal to eat the meat. But now you don't. Well, yeah, exactly, right? So it depends. I guess, you know, it depends on your sort of moral standpoint and, and reasoning. I'm a bio-vegetarian. Yeah, exactly. I don't eat biologically produced meat only chemically produced, which makes it very difficult to be organic. Yes. Mm. So It's a tricky world. It is a tricky world. It is becoming increasingly more complex. Um, mm. so that's cool, I guess. That so, is cool. Yes. What are you bringing to the table today? So to the table today, I am bringing um, something from the culture ministry in Norway, because I am cultured. Um, they are turning off FM radio in 2017. All right. And they're the first country to do it. So in the UK, we had the digital switch over to TV where all the analog TV signals were cut off. And obviously now the FM being cut off is is coming as well, um, which is a, another big, it's the second big shift from analog to digital. It's going to, two things it's going to do, it's going to free up a huge amount of wavelength. Um, so that's what's been snapped up. The, the TV wavelengths were snapped up for 4G in the UK. And now there's going to be a whole swathe of other radio waves, which will be, will be snapped up for something else. The other thing is, um, I'd be very interested to see how the digital network is in Norway. Presumably it's really good because in a car, you're moving constantly. And DAB in this country, in the UK, has a particular habit of breaking up and not working, even in houses, let alone on the move on the road. So they must have a much better infrastructure than we do for this, which is fantastic for such a sparsely populated country. I think that's really interesting that they must be that far ahead in infrastructure. Either that or they only listen to CDs in the car. I must say, because I used to live in Norway many years ago, and I remember like even the FM thing was sort of patchy. Uh, <laughs> five FM, there are only five FM radio channels in Norway, which is amazing, really. Well, no, it's so, really, so many here. It's really boring if you sit in the car a lot. And there's only 22 no, um, services on DAB in Norway. There are hundreds here. I'm sure yeah. there are hundreds here. Yeah, and I, and I still think like British radio is really not that good if you compare it to say the American market. 
I, I don't know. I only listen to BBC radio, so um, I don't explore the things because I get really wound up by listening to commercials piped into my ears. Yeah, I mean, there is that. Which That's what American radio is. Yeah, but I, I still remember coming to California when I was uh, like a teenager and discovering mm. the fact that they had radio channels for alternative music with, with DJs picking the music. So it was like a curated service for... Uh, like a subculture or or a specific type of people because just I guess it's just because there's more people listening but uh, mm-hmm. I thought that was just absolutely fantastic and that is something that yeah. you know to be fair I don't find in Britain also it's that to some extent but also I think that whole thing is pretty um, uh, Obs- not obscure what's the word it's out of date now it doesn't matter because IP radio there are hundreds of thousands of channels available internationally that can broadcast you know look at the what's the Glasgow University one um, that Nathan used to do Terrarium is it Terrarium no can't can so, remember we should find a link you should listen to to, uh, to Nathan's show it's pretty good if I imagine they're still up there somewhere, but yeah, so you can broadcast to just twelve people now internationally, and anyone in the world can listen to it. So I, this this whole, I suppose it maybe fits in with um, with uh, TV and and how there's a big decrease in people buying TV licenses in the UK, not because we're cheating any more than we always have done, but because genuinely people don't watch live TV. I think people will genuinely stop listening to live radio now that you've got it on demand and constantly. And if you can broadcast to a tiny audience over a low, long period of time, as you might do in a podcast, for instance, that maybe having the FM and the DAB and all that life, the stuff that has to be broadcast live is completely obsolete. So switching to DAB, you may as well skip out the middleman and switch straight to IP radio. Yeah, potentially. I think, I mean, it's interesting. It's really interesting that people are sort of you know, moving away from technologies that we've been very, very reliant on even in quite recent history. Mm. But I guess things become increasingly, maybe the pace of change is increasing, and so these things are becoming unnecessarily quicker. But we're hopscotching things as well. Things come away, they don't get established, and we jump onto the next thing. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I don't know. It's it's interesting. We'll see if... I guess what's interesting to see is if there will be a new standard developed, mm-hmm. you know, because standards are still very, very useful for, I mean, if nothing else, for just production of hardware on the other side, like there's all these things connected to radio. Cause I don't think people would stop listening to music and news and um, storytelling no. and uh, other things. In... Well, they're certainly not stop listening, but what if they'll stop listening live? Well, I think there are some things that need to be live, you know, like weather warnings, um, Norway Mm -hmm. that we're talking about right now is a country that has a huge uh, sort of outdoors movement where people are outdoors Mm -hmm. on the mountains, um, in the ocean a lot. And things like warnings, traffic, all of that stuff, which traditionally has gone at least to the general publication over FM. Um, yeah so no, that definitely needs will have to, to be, be replaced live but the things in between they exactly. don't need to be uh, you know the, the radio programs no. themselves they're all pre-recorded anyway yes they don't need to be live but i think there needs to be a live channel somehow 
Or there is a... That would be useful. Mm -hmm. Or bulletins going out. But the other flip aspect to it is there is a beauty, which is now completely lost, of I can only watch this at 8.30 on a Friday night because after that, it's gone. I don't know. There's no beauty to that. That is just nostalgia. I think that's not... So something I really despise is when... um, Netflix releases the whole series season, if we use the American terms, the whole season onto Netflix at once. And there's no, I, I don't, there's no fun in that. You're a Luddite. It's com- it must have completely changed the pace of storytelling because there's no point in putting a cliffhanger on something anymore at all. What's the point in a cliffhanger? I can just watch the next five minutes to the next one. No, it, it has changed the uh, storytelling. That is true. But mm-hmm. th- that's just how, um, you know, mediums, technology and storytelling connect together. You know, like the way yeah, you... It's not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it really is. Because it doesn't necessarily, you know, you could still release something. I mean, like we're releasing this every two weeks. We could just record everything and release it in a batch. Or we can sort of do it as we go because then we uh, can stay in tune with what's happening in the industry in in real time. So Mm -hmm. it just gives you as a creator the choice of your pace of uh, of release. So so you just get more freedom. Freedom is always good. Well, you might you might disagree with the sort of directoral decision of uh, publishing pace on Netflix, you know, but that's like an opinion. I don't think you should necessarily uh, dictate that constraint onto like the all the TV show directors and producers of the world. Not at all. Not so interesting. I'm not saying I disagree with it. It is an opinion. I'm allowed to have them. <laughs> well, but I think it's. I, I, no, I think everything's on demand now, which is great. But I don't know how you balance the on demand versus having the cliffhangers and the interesting storylines, which you can't just move through. But then part of it is people move through it, and you monopolize their time and remove them from society. I suppose that's a good thing in some cases. <laughs> but I don't think it's always. I mean, I don't think er- everything is always on demand. People are exploring these products right now. Mm-hmm. But then again, if you look at something like Serial. Yeah. That uh, was pre-produced but released once every week. And just had this huge yeah. impact, a huge following. And that was curated. Mm, and it had cliffhangers. That had huge cliffhangers. But, and, <laughs> and also, but that was very, very intentional, right? They could have released yeah, yeah, it all at great. the same time. So... It's but on the other uh, hand, it was also on demand. That was also on demand. You it could was... listen to it slower, but not faster. Mm-hmm. And but you could listen to it at whatever point you wanted during the week. You didn't have to listen to it at a set time period because it's a podcast. It's downloadable. It's not yeah, a yeah. live broadcast. That was nice, uh, though. Mm-hmm. That was great. Yeah. So, I mean, and you can, if if you want to, you can just do like like the Twitch thing, and What's just Twitch. Twitch is a live streaming channel for gamers. Okay. Uh, it's super big. 
You should really know what Twitch is, John. I'm disappointed. I I've never owned a games machine in my life. Well, Why would I know what a video channel for gamers is? You're on the internet. Um, Not watching just, people play games. It's like one of the biggest <laughs> services online, right? Um, I can't believe you don't know it. Anyways, that, then you just say like, oh, you, you publish to your followers that you're going to play on Thursday night. And they can only see you watch that, play that game live on Thursday night. And I people mean, are watching you play a game. Thousands of people are watching people play games. Are they like giving you advice or... No, they're just, just like, like really... TV series or... It's more like a football game. Okay. So like there will be like a thousand people tuning in to like my brother playing... Um, what does he play? Dota 2. Okay. And then they all go like, oh my god, it's so crazy, he's bashing this guy. And they get all excited. And are they like chatting in a chat room or on Twitter yeah, or something? I'm yeah. now watching people fighting, or well, killing people on San Andreas. Yeah, see? And I can I can hear the gamers talking, I think. Yeah. Or I can hear someone yeah. talking anyway. Yeah, a, lo- a big thing is also like the gamer narrates what they're doing. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Interesting, right, so- interesting. So you're still having all these models and they're just, it's just an expansion. I mean, no, no one is taking mm-hmm. that away. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. Anyways, on that note, we should probably move on, shouldn't we? We probably should. All right, let's talk about user research. The users are always wrong. I don't know if users are always wrong. You've just got to ask them the right questions. If you ask them the wrong questions, you'll get the wrong answers. <laughs> Do you like this product? Yes, of course I like it because you're paying me £50 to look at it. I think it's lovely and you've designed it very, very well. I don't want to upset you because I know you're the designers and in school I was told that creatives are temperamental. Yeah. <laughs> It's like the first thing to say, if you're ever doing like formal user testing, which I've never really involved in, where you sit someone down in front of probably now a computer and you've got a little eye tracking things, the first thing the person sat next to them will go, I did not design this. You can be as mean as you like, because otherwise they'll just be nice to you because you're paying them to be there. Unless you get someone who's very good, in which case they won't be nice to you. Um, But yeah, that's the first thing. Users lie. (laughs) Users can only tell you what they know they want. So they can't tell you about something that doesn't exist. I think that's an interesting question and debate, actually. They can tell you what they want, and they can tell you what other things already do for them, but they can't tell you about something which doesn't exist. That's your job. If the user could do that, then you wouldn't be there. But that's sort of the Johnny Ive argument, isn't it? Or like Steve, No, Johnny Steve Ive's Jobs. argument is, I know best. Yeah, but no, but Steve Jobs' argument, and it's like the Henry Ford thing. If I ask the users what they want, they'd say faster horses. Faster horse, exactly, which is true. No, John, Johnny Ive, his, uh, the, the Apple thing is that they don't test with users. They, they design the best thing. They test on themselves, which is arguably testing on users because I'm willing to bet they all use Apple products. Um, and then they ship it out the door with very minimal user testing, although I think it's been creeping in with the number of leaks recently. I think it's creeping into the fold now. Yeah, I don't know. It's also like, I mean, we should not get sort of too deep into the Apple thing, but they are also doing stuff like letting other things publish 
letting other companies publish things, seeing how their functions work. And they're like, oh, we're not going to do that. We're going to do that. Take the best, improve Mm -hmm. on it. I mean, very rarely do they actually produce something which is just innovative, like something new. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just have to do it a little bit better than other people, arguably. Yeah, yeah, no. But so, so that's... Uh, I guess that's a different method of of uh, uh, working, just sort of production and working. Yeah. So, but anyways, let's let's draw a line with with user testing, which is when you have a designed product and you are t- testing elements of it, and user research, which is where you're then c- creating the knowledge bank from which you will build understanding and design. I think that's a good line to draw. I think that's a really good line to draw. And I don't think necessarily that that line is drawn often enough and not clear enough in education, that's for sure. No, that's true. Because it, it can be very formal. So the user the user testing after that, after the fact, um, is like the, the giants of this are Facebook. Um, so there was a fantastic podcast uh, a couple of uh, months ago, I think it was Radiolab probably, where they talked about the, the user testing at Facebook. So every single user on Facebook is enrolled on average in eight user testing experiments where your Facebook feed and the way your Facebook looks is tweaked in eight ways to test how you react to it. So they are doing this user testing on an epic scale where they're tweaking dialogue to see if you interact with things more or words or colors. So they're doing that hardcore user testing and they're also doing it with this you know, if you're an agency and you get through 50 people testing an app, that is amazing. These guys are testing on hundreds of millions of people every day, which is incredible. But that's very strictly user testing. Yes. Then we go the other way, which is user research, which is maybe your, um, which goes from as unscientific as standing on the street and accosting people, which is really difficult to do. You either love it or you hate it. I hate it, but it gets you results really quickly. Or it gives you a very low self-esteem and feeling of lack of worth very quickly. Um, To much more formal um, uh, long-term tailing experiments where you might be um, shadowing someone for a week or a month to build up a picture of their habits. You might be sitting down and watching their family interacting on TV for a month or six months. There are companies that specialize in doing purely that kind of research as well. I know, because th- that's the thing, right? Because we went to a really user, like user research centric university, back in university. And I think the impression was given that that type of research was done in industry, maybe to a larger extent than... I think that's definitely true then maybe that at least my experience have been so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I concur completely with that, which is uh, a bit of a shock, really, especially the amount of countries, companies that say that that's what they do. And then you actually, it's not so much that happening. No, and I mean, in a, in a way, I also feel that it's okay. And, and this is my argument, right? Because I've, I've worked with, different smaller and larger companies and the sort of associated costs with um, embedding a researcher Mm -hmm. and also the ethical sort of constraints and problems around it but 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 if nothing else the cost right right like that's a whole nother can of worms but 
But even just like, all right, you know, we're going to have a designer who uh, follow this family for a month. Or we're going to have four designers mm-hmm. who follow these four families for a week, which is like a design salary for a month. You can't really pass that cost on to anything but the largest companies. No. Like, you just can't. No, it's massive. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's crazy, and and you'd have to like because all of those hours are billable hours. Mm-hmm. So, so there are there's an interesting line here because there are companies which do that, like as in they do that research, and then they write reports, and then you buy their reports. Yeah, but that's not really the same thing, is it? I don't know if that work's being done, and you're receiving the fruits of that work after it's been processed. Is that not? user research so does user research from a designer's point of view have to be primary research no it doesn't but there's definitely cases where uh you know that would be optimal and you just can't do it because Mm -hmm. but i mean mostly because of like time and economic constraints and also skill set you know it might not be your back it might yeah talking with people is an art talking with people is an art well to be fair like Jenny Lennox, who we interviewed in the first season, uh, when she taught us once that like sometimes you can get the feeling that all of these sort of designer tool sets and cards and things like that is just like an aid for the designer and you might not necessarily need them if you really knew how to listen. Yeah. Now, I personally think that most people don't know how to listen. No, I, I, I'm very much of that view. I've worked with one person who um, was the most phenomenal conversationalist I've ever seen. And he could sit down for an hour with a group of 12 people and draw everything that it would take, you know, a day's workshop for me to get near producing out of people. And he actually said there are three ways of talking to people. Let's see if I can remember. There's um, debate, which is the tennis equivalent. Well, it's equivalent of tennis. You're waiting for the other guy to drop the ball. I give a point. You negate it. Give me a point. And we're trying to convince each other of our argument. That's like you and me most days when we're hanging out. (laughs) Yeah. There's um, discussion, where we are putting forward our ideas and maybe we'll compromise on things and there's dialogue and dialogue is where we will put forward our ideas and then we'll create something new and a genuine dialogue is the most um, valuable form of conversation and having that producing that is is a massive skill especially with a large group of people and to feel everyone's hearing because other you need if there's a group of 12 of you and you're the only person who has that skill, you've got to mediate 11 other people as well. Yeah. Which is what makes talking to groups of users really difficult. Yeah, well, I mean, that structure. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we're just now we've established that it's really hard. So let's get back to sort of task at hand here. You know, like that sort of deep level of research would be lovely if we could always do it. But, but, you know, let's just face it. Like sometimes, or a lot of times, that's just not going to be the reality 
in a you know a um, sort of well small, in, in, in working, working life for a small medium sized client. <laughs> well, just a, in a working working life. I mean, that's uh-huh. also incidentally that's also why it's so important to do it whilst you're at uni because then you get experience of real people and how they think and what they do and then and in most cases at uni you don't need ethics and in most cases you you don't need ethics right um mm-hmm. so so that's an excellent opportunity to get experience of real people and talking to people that are outside yeah. your comfort zone because you might not get a chance to do it as freely ever again but mm-hmm. If you're, uh, you know, early in your career or just like late in your career, there are still like other things you can do as well if you're working for like an SME um, sort of thing. Like, I'm a big fan of if you're doing something really quick and really short and dirty, just talk to people that you know. Yes. And that's also excellent advice at university. So one of the things that I fell flat on my face for time and time again was trying to talk to difficult people. Talk to the people you know who have a, rely- a similar experience. Uh, it gets you other places a lot quicker. Yeah, no, absolutely. Mind you, I did... Uh, just sort of anecdotally here. I decided I needed to talk to like multi-millionaires for my, for my final project. Yeah, that's a tricky one. Yeah. We've so, had a project in like that. So what I did in that case was that I talked to people who also need to talk to multimillionaires a lot because I didn't know a lot of people that were extremely rich mm-hmm. uh, and they wouldn't like be oh hey Richard Branson I emailed Richard Branson and I was like hey Richard Branson like can I interview you for my uni project and uh, he didn't reply <sighs> surprise surprise but uh, I got in touch with the people at like Luxury Magazine, Condé Nast Traveler, um, Monocle Magazine, and talked to their editorial staff, who has much more access to that sort of thing you know, on a daily basis. And they said, "Well, you know, our experience. Uh, this is our experience of this type of of work and these type of people. Mm -hmm. And this is how we think that they would reply. And we think this is valid and this is not valid. And, uh, you know, we think this is valuable and this is not so valuable. And that was still, um, whilst it's not like firsthand user research, you're still talking to someone who is, has much more access and expertise. Mm -hmm. And realistically, you know, if you flip that another way around, if you're working with children, an infant, you're going to talk to the parent, not the infant. And it's as valid. It's just a different way of looking at that relationship. Yeah, I know. No, no, yeah, exactly, right? So just peripheral people. I also think like something that's undervalued sometimes is talking to unrelated people. Explain. So like, say, um, if I need to do something really quickly for like computer scientists Mm -hmm. you know then i talk to my mom so my mom is like my mom has a son who works on and off in computing science and she just still doesn't get what it's about like she has no clue Mm -hmm. um and then listening to her trying to get a hold of what it is it's also interesting 
Mm-hmm. You know, I think you can learn a lot about that sort of thing because you can get really blind with do's and don'ts and how things are and you have your sort of preconceived ideas and sometimes what you need from your user research is actually challenging your preconceptions as much as mm-hmm. sort of leading your decisions yeah well, that's true I suppose this is also a you've got to find out what your preconceptions are and part of that might be talking to other people about theirs which is yeah absolutely it's not I mean that's still like that's a little bit outside of the realm of the user research thing Mm-hmm. But, uh, but still. So yeah, I mean, what, what what sort of quick quick things do you do? I think the quickest thing is genuinely walking down on the street and talking to people. Like we all live in cities. There are lots of people, and some of them will stop and talk to you, especially if you have a balloon or some stickers on. I think that's the quickest way to engage with people. The other way is to pay people to engage with you, and there are companies who will source people for you. If you have some money, that's a way to do it. That's that actually something that you never think of at university, really, it, because you don't have the money to do that. But companies do. People will pay for it. Yeah. Interesting. Banks of people. Interestingly, um, for those of you who were working in the digital realm, there's a really, really good site called userresearch.com where you can sort of pay per user test you'd be like oh i want my user these users to test this website i want the user to test this app and then you specify your demographic Mm -hmm. and they come back with results it's not quite as good as like sitting down with someone and talking to them and being able to have like a valuable discussion about what they're doing and not doing and you can't get all the cues you get from being a person in a room but if you need you know 20 users in a week and you also need to run two other projects that's a very viable and still very useful thing to do and it's i mean Mm -hmm. it's much much better than not doing any research and i'm like you're gonna get super good stuff anyways Mm -hmm. so there's there's all the surveys that you can put out there there's um social media great for recruiting people the facebook groups you can use to pull people in i'm not a huge fan of surveys but that place if you want fast results i was just gonna say surveys can be problematic because they're yeah, like so it's to say it goes back to the initial point though if you ask the right wrong question you're going to get the wrong response yeah and i mean there's a whole f- field of study into like how you form surveys and most designers are not taught those skills no but also i mean by all means the survey has a place my concerns with it is that people are using it if they are afraid to talk to users. It's like a uh, like a band-aid. Yeah. You know? and especially for students. Yeah, I mean, man, we're in the, obviously, all the Facebook groups for the, the general ones for the course, and the number of surveys which appear at the start of each project is ridiculous. It's huge. Yeah, and I mean, just don't... Unnecessary. Just don't do that. I mean, like every, I mean, if you've done a survey, like we all know you can do a survey, mm-hmm. right? And and know its place, but then uh, there is much more interesting ways of, of getting a lot of that. One of the interesting ways of, of talking to people is remember that your, your clients who you're designing for can get you users. So we usually have, or I've always in the past asked when I've engaged with the client, so I want to run a workshop or two with your users and they set it up for you. 
they know these people, they bring them in. They're probably going to do some of the same things we do. They're going to ask people who owe them a favor or people they know are engaged. But that's a great way to get people together. Also, access um, groups near your area. So if you're doing a healthcare project, look for patient forums. Those are people who've actively said, I want to be engaged in developing the public services in my area. They're great people. They'll be very opinionated. They'll be very biased and they'll be very strong. So you've got to be prepared for that. But they're accessible groups of people who are already self-organized. But that's the sort of stuff that maybe might make you worried like really sort of early in your career. I love that stuff though. I mean, mm -hmm. having having users that will really stand up to you and challenge you uh, is so valuable. And if you have a good way of documenting that, then that's absolutely fabulous. Yeah. Uh, because if you have a lot of people that are sort of agreeable and it's going to be comfortable, I mean, comfortable and nice is not what you're looking for in your design research. You know, like that's what no. you're looking for, like maybe in your uh, relationship privately. <laughs> uh, but it's yeah. not, I mean, you know, like you're not the, the point of doing user research with, uh, you know, like patients or, or, or uh, like ex-criminals. It's not that you're going to be comfortable with how their lives are at present. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's sort of to discover the real pain points and the things that actually bother them so you can hopefully make things better. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, help like some guy who who pays your company sell more things. Yeah. But then it's the flip side. <laughs> well, I'm not really sure if it is the flip side. Then you have an, uh, I think then you have a responsibility of making sure that what he's selling is as good as it can be and uh, you know you're selling it in a way which is as good as it can be and as non-offensive mm -hmm. as it can be and you know i mean sometimes you're doing you know if you're doing commercials for coca-cola right uh, that that is problematic in many ways but at least maybe you can delight people yeah that's true that's true so in between we've talked in one way or another about the start and the end there. So in the middle, there's this section where you're actually designing something, where you've yes. taken the research you've got from your focus groups, your people on the street, your surveys, your whatever, and now you're turning them into something. And that's, it's very trendy to do with your users as well, to design with your users, to in some aspects, some element or another. Are you and alluding I think that's a really like interesting area. Co-design. I'm alluding to co-design in some way, shape or form. And co-design, interestingly, um, called participatory design the first and coming from Scandinavia, arriving in America. And then um, when it went into American businesses, businesses going, actually, you know, we don't want to people to participate in the design process. So that, that's too far. We'll, we'll design with them at a distance, but we're not having them participate. We don't want to talk to those people. Um, but yeah, so co-design is what I'm alluding to. So I, I think that co-design is very valuable in a way. I also think it's a lie. I've never seen anything which is truly genuinely co-designed because design is a process which takes you from the start of the research to delivery, presentation, sales. You do not do that with your users. At some point, your users become your customers. So I think that the whole premise is, is slightly flawed. But I, my job is to run workshops with users and to um, do design with them, which I think is something that's really interesting. And a, a nice tension in there is um, you are a designer. Your skill is to design things 
not to blindly follow where your user leads. And I think that's the, the most difficult balance in, uh, in co-design is taking what your users are saying and shaping it into something which is, for a start, opinionated, designed by committee, never good. So it's got to have an opinion. It's got to be different. It's got to be interesting. And committees don't produce that. And uh, co-design is essentially a committee. So that's where the skill of designers in that context is shaping that out. It's not just listening to what your users say. Otherwise, you end up with a toaster with an egg poacher on the end, which we all know doesn't work because some of us have bought them. Yeah, so, so how do you feel the difference between iterative user testing and co-design? Like, what's where would you lay the boundary? So iterative user testing is, is user testing. It's I'm designing, I'm going back to a group, I'm giving it to them, they're giving me feedback, I'm going away and designing. All the creative decisions are being made by you, isolated, or the group of yous. Co-design is about you go into the room with maybe an idea, with something, and you leave the room with it more developed and more rounded. And creative decisions have been made in the course of that, that day. Um, the project has been pushed forward. You've not just got feedback on what you've already done. Absolutely. So when do you, that's the key difference. When do you think it's the right thing to do one and when it's the right thing to do another? See, that's the challenging one. I think it's... I always like to do a bit of design at the start myself, get myself into a space after I've worked with users and research, take that to them, work and develop the middle bit of a project, go away and do another section myself to push it to make sure that it's not designed by committee and come back and finish something off, round it off with users. It's probably a really bad description of that. Um, right, because, because I think... I was I was going for maybe like more of a project thing because I thought you did some some work a long time ago um, at Cairngorm Ski Range. Yeah, is that Cairngorm Mountain Range? Cairngorm Mountain, yeah. Cairngorm Mountain, and I could see a participatory approach there would have a much higher value because then sort of the people that participate in design are also like the primary users, and then there is other yeah. stakeholders, which is like visitors to the mountains and things like that. You can mm -hmm. move in and out of the project, but really you're designing for yeah. this very, yeah. very tight-knit group of, of sort of six to 20 people. Whereas mm -hmm. say in something like uh, the like, like like an app, like a mass market yeah. app, which is going to be for, for 20, 30,000 people. And those are like the one user is like readers of uh, something. Then, or even take it further, if you're designing something that is not actually going to be used, so you're designing the back end to a payment system, who's your user there? See, that's... I challenge you on that one, though, because actually then you're going back to a small user group again, because then you're like, well, it's actually these technical operators. and Are they the users? They just have to build it. Well, no, but like the people that need to operate it. To make sure it no works. one operates it, it's a, it's a system. But yeah, okay, maybe. I, 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 I think so that's one of the things I struggle with now, and I don't like because I'm going to talk to these people who are technical people, but they don't use the products, and they're influencing the UI very heavily because they've got to build the stuff below, and there are certain things the stuff below just can't do. Yeah. But they're the users, but they're not the users. 
but the users know nothing about what happens when you put a credit card in the machine and put your pin in. Everyone just thinks it goes bing and some money comes out of your bank account. That's a lie. Yeah, no, of course. But say like the service staff in that situation mm-hmm. or the, uh, the admin staff, like they are users of this product. Having their input is like super valuable. Mm-hmm. Potentially. In the design stage. I think there's lots of layers here, which becomes really interesting lot, when yeah, you're designing yeah. something which isn't a, a, a user-facing product. There are lots of products which don't face users. Users use I, them, but they don't know about them. I disagree on that. Okay. I think that has to do with the definition of user, right? Like there's yeah. people that are sort of users of the system or that, that don't see like what it's doing. Like this payment example is really interesting. That doesn't mean that no one is using the system on the other end. It's just not like the, uh, maybe like there's 10 million people using the this uh, payment system or 100 million mm. people. And their opinion doesn't matter at all. Like what actually matters is the people that need to troubleshoot it. Like the troubleshooting people, if you can help them to do their work better so the downtime reduces, like that is some really mm. valuable stuff. Sort of, except it does matter what happens there because it affects what the end user has. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. We can make it super easy for the technical staff, but you can't use it because your card needs to be put in three different slots, four different pin numbers put in, and you need to stand on your head. Exactly, right? So, makes it easy for the technical staff and they're the users. All right, no, well, no, no, no. So all of these people are users, right? What you were saying, which I was challenging, is this system has no users. And that's why mm-hmm. I contest it, right? I I think it actually does have users and the input really is really valuable. Okay. And the same thing, I mean, the same thing with, uh, with like an app, but say if you build an app and you're a small team and your team are going to do like the build and the maintenance and mm-hmm. more sort of the scenario of a small startup, which I know some of our listeners are working in, where you have a small core team who are iterating on this one product, then mm-hmm. you like then the scenario is slightly different. It's still really valuable to engage with your users, but the methods on in which you do so might be slightly different. Like a co-design process mm-hmm. might not be as key. Yeah. Because you're actually co-designing with like the production staff because they're building it in the first place. And that is something that you're doing naturally. So here's, here's the thing going back to your Kangol Mountain example, which also applies in lots of other places. And something that I always say at the start of my workshops is I'm coming to you as a expert in design. I have been appointed by your organization to be the expert in design. I don't know about your field of work. I've read some papers, maybe read a book, listened to people talking. I don't know you are the expert here. I am being paid to shape what you know into the next thing. That's why I want users in the room with me. That's why I want to design with users because they know what I don't. If I tried to become an expert in everything I designed, I could design one or two things a year and I would be burnt out in two years time. So that's where the value lies in having users in the room. So the Kangol Mountain, I could not even begin to know everything about the mountain. But the guys there did. That knowledge exists in a way that's well beyond what you could ever achieve a designer. And that's why having a user with you is key, I think. 
No, I think I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think this is a topic that we will come back to, but if you are sort of nervous about user research, that sort of thing, you don't really know, really know how, to, how it's done, like do email us because we have a couple of years experience of working with users in real uh, projects now and we're, we're going to help you. We're going to reply, I promise. <laughs> uh, and I think... John finished that off so nicely. So we're going to leave it at that. Wonderful. It's been very good speaking to you. So Always soon joke. after seeing you as well. <laughs> I had the joy of visiting Sweden this weekend. It was wonderful. Um, but yeah, so it's always good speaking to you. Um, and we'll speak again soon. This has been a non-linear approach to working with users. I'm still Daniel. I'm still John. And we'll speak to you in a fortnight. <laughs>